0: Hey everybody, it's T. I just want to wish you all a happy Halloween, give you a Halloween special. So today, we're going to go into the Black Death. We're going to go into a story by Jackie Riser from The book Intrusion. And we're also going to finish off a portion of Pat's story, part two, because there's going to be a part two. I want to thank you guys for joining me, Let me know if you like the background music. I kind of tried to switch it up a little bit, see if that's better. So, let's get it. The Reapers of the Saucers. Now, for those of you new to this and have never heard this theory... There's a book by William Bramley, he's a historian, called The Gods of Eden. And it's about extraterrestrial intervention over... since the beginning of recorded time. Now, he started off not buying into the theory, right? Until he started doing some more digging. And for those who have read the book, which, you know, I haven't actually read the whole thing. And tonight, I started going over it a little more. You know, I don't necessarily buy into all of it. In fact, you know my stance on the ancient astronaut theory. But, an interesting parallel starts to appear. Now, again... For those who are new to this, this is going to be a special little surprise for you. And I think you're going to find it really interesting. The Black Death began in Asia and soon spread to Europe where this disastrous plague killed an estimated 25 million people. This at the time was one-third of Europe's entire population. This all occurred less than four years. And some historians believe it was close to 35 to 40 million, or about half of Europe's population at the time. This cataclysmic event began between 1347 to 1350. The plague continued to decimate Europe, with decreasing fatalities every 10 to 20 years and short-lived outbreaks, all the way straight through the 1700s. Bramley states it's hard to know the number of deaths over a 400 year period. But he estimates over a hundred million in that time frame. Now there were two types of plague to be responsible. So the first one's the bubonic type, which is most commonly characterized by swelling of the lymph nodes, which are called buboes, and accompanied by vomiting, fever, and death if not treated within a few days. This form of plague is not contagious between human beings. It requires an active carrier like a flea, for example, or a mouse, or a rat. For this reason, historians believe that a rodent infestation caused bubonic plague. They carry it even today. A number of records from between 1347 to the late 1600s indicate the rodent infestations prior to several outbreaks of Black Death, leading credence to the rodent theory. Now the second form of the plague contributing to the Black Death is highly contagious type known as pneumonic plague. The effects of pneumonic plague are coughing up blood, shivering, rapid breathing with body temp high, People will die within three to four days of this contagion being contracted. It's nearly always fatal. Transmits best in cold weather and poor ventilation. This form caused the most casualties due to crowding, poor hygiene, and ventilation issues at the time. But Bramley notes that enigmas about the plague outbreak still exist. Outbreaks occurred in weather was warm and summery in uncrowded regions and not all outbreaks of the bubonic plague were preceded by rodents rather only a minority one of the questions posed is how was it able to strike isolated human populations which had no contact with earlier infected areas well being a historian he notes you could simply solve this by going back to the records and reports at the time and finding stories and finding out what happened And what he found was unbelievable, stunning and would seem like the theories of a crazed man, odd entities and strange mist, foul-smelling mist, of all regions of the world that the plague broke out in, not only Europe. The mist was preceded by usually bright lights appearing in the sky. He notes the lights in the mist were actually reported far more than rodent infestations and in more regions. The plague years were in fact a period of heavy UFO activity, quotes Bramley. What then were the mists? He notes germ weapons. This is a possibility. This is a conclusion that he draws because the US and the Soviets at the time, had a very large stockpile of weapons, including bubonic plague. They are kept in canisters, which are aerosol-based, and when sprayed, causes big clouds of thick mist visible to the eye. Now, the parallels with the ancient outbreaks of the Pneumonic and bubonic plague are quite striking. People report foul-smelling mist coming through before an outbreak occurs. That is a striking parallel. I will have to give him that. Now, I will state at this point, there are two main theories when you look at this. One was proposed by William Bramley, which is the bright lights were UFOs and entities would spread the mist. That's a pretty good one. But I also like Sir Fred Hoyle's theory. Now, he was an astronomer, a physicist. I mean, he was a smart fucking guy. One of my heroes, actually. And... His theory, and he actually has charts. It's it's in a book called Diseases from Space. It's one of my favorite books. He has a chart of the comets being noted during the Black Plague and how they would spread the disease. Now this goes into panspermia, building blocks of life being found throughout the universe. Comets carrying those building blocks, perhaps even foreign ones to our bodies, which would make us sick because our bodies have never been exposed to that. Now I like that theory just as well. Now personally I lean more toward that theory, but again I haven't actually read all of this so I'm learning it with you. I knew about it, but I've never actually picked it up because I go over so many other things. So we're going to find out which one's kind of a better theory with this as well as we go through this, but so far, I'm pretty shocked. The first outbreak of plague in Europe followed an unusual series of events. Between 1298 and 1314, seven large comets were seen over Europe. One of which was quoted as awe-inspiring blackness. One year before the first outbreak in Europe, a column of fire was reported over the Pope's palace in France. A ball of fire was reported over Paris earlier that year. It reportedly stayed visible to observers for some time. Now back then, people thought Things in the sky were omens of plague and epidemics. They were very superstitious. But going over this book, there seems to be a lot of parallels with that. And we're going to see a little bit more of that. It is true that some reported comets were probably just that, comets. That's what Bramley states. He also states that back then, like I said, everything was called a comet because it was unusual that was the best way they could chalk it up but Bramley notes book published in 1557 a chronicle of prodigies and prodigents and on page 494 you read about a comet observed in 1479 it was seen over Arabia and it was sharp it was in the shape of a sharply wooden beam looking much like a half of a rocket within the clouds and having portholes taken from eyewitness testimony. Today we would call that object a UFO, not a comet, Bramley states. Now Bramley did an illustration of this taken from witness testimonies and I had seen it before prior to actually reading this book. And it does look like a rocket ship but there is one distinct difference that stands out to me not from a rocket ship, but one startling factor that stands out. And it's got a Reaper Scythe on it. Symbol of Death. Now that always stuck out with me. And if the accounts are true and that illustration is accurate, that seems to validate a lot of this. At least to a degree. Again, I'm pretty... Like, I'll hear the stories of ancient astronauts, but at the same time, I have to chalk it up to it might have been their interpretation, hallucinations, misidentification, stuff like that. It's too susceptible, in my opinion. It doesn't mean I don't believe it. It doesn't mean I bag on it. It's just... I, I don't know where to take it. Now, the link between... The Black Death and unknown celestial objects was established immediately during the first outbreaks of the plague in Asia. The first reports of the plague came out of the East. They were confused, exaggerated, and frightening, as reports from the quarter of the world so often are. Descriptions of storms and earthquakes, of meteorites and comets trailing noxious gases, ...that killed trees and destroyed fertility of the land. That was a random historian, but he also draws the same parallels as William Bramley, as you see. So the plague connection isn't actually first noted during the Black Death, but before that. Because there's a striking correlation between the Black Death reports and the ones of the Justinian Plague... But we read about another outbreak in connection with odd objects in the sky. In the year 1117, almost 250 years before the Black Death, the same connection is made. In 1117 in January, a comet passed like a fiery army. From the north towards the Orient, the moon was Ocas blood-red in an eclipse, a year later a light appeared, more brilliant than the sun. This was followed by a great cold, famine, and plague, of which one-third of humanity is said to have perished. Now, right here, William Bramley notes and he only found this in one history book and theorizes that perhaps it means one-third of the afflicted population of the local plague outbreak rather than the entire world. Once the Black Death started, Noteworthy aerial phenomena can- it continued to accompany the epidemic. Reports of many of these accounts were assembled by Johannes Newell and published in his book Black Death, A Chronicle of the Plague in 1926. According to Noel, at least 26 comets were reported between 1500 and 1543, and 15 or 16 between 1556 and 1557. And in 1618, 8 or 9 were observed. Mr. Noel emphasizes the connection between the plague and the sky phenomena, or comets, and quotes one tale. I'm going to give you a quote, but I'm not going to go into all the names because I can't pronounce them all. In the year 1606, a comet was seen, after which a general plague traversed the world. In 1852, a comet was brought so violent a plague upon Prague and the Netherlands, among other places, it carried off 37,000 people, and in the Netherlands, forty six thousand. 1415. We then go to Vienna, Austria, 1568. We get the following description. When in the sun and the moonlight, a beautiful rainbow and a fiery beam were seen hovering above the church of St. Stephanie, which was followed by a violent epidemic in Austria. Nuremberg, Württemberg, and other places carrying off human beings and cattle. So these lights would be, they appeared before an epidemic, as noted in some of these descriptions, and it would be anywhere from like several minutes to a year, not really any longer. So fairly quick. Where there is a gap between such a sighting and the arrival of the plague, a second phenomenon would appear. This was sometimes reported. The appearance of frightening human-like figures dressed in black often seen on the outskirts of the town or village, and their presence signaled the outbreak almost immediately. An account from 1682 tells of one such visit a century earlier. In Brandenburg, Germany there appeared in 1559 horrible men, of whom at first 15 and later on 12 were seen. The foremost had beside their posteriors little heads, the other's fearful faces and long sights with which they cut cut at the oats, so that the swish could be heard at a great distance, but the oats remained standing. When a quantity of people came out running out to see them, they went on their way mowing. The incident of the strange men was followed by the plague immediately. Bramley goes on to ask who were these strange men and what kind of thing did they have that they were swishing around that obviously wasn't cutting the oats and in this case. He goes on to theorize that maybe it was the chemical weapons kind of thing where it was spreading the plague as they mowed. We're going to go into another quote about these strange men. Similar men were reported in Hungary. Here's the quote for you. In the year of our Christ, 1571, was seen criminants in the mountain towns of Hungary. On Ascension Day, in the great evening of disturbance of all, when on the Schulerberg there appeared so many black riders that the opinion was prevalent that the Turks were were making a secret raid but who rapidly disappeared again and thereupon a raging plague broke out in the neighborhood. Strange men, demons, and flying figures were observed in the European communities. Frightening creatures were often observed carrying brooms, scythes, or swords. These were used to sweep or knock at people's doors of houses and the people in the homes would fall ill of the plague afterwards. This is where people draw death as a skeleton with a scythe. The scythe came to symbolize the act of death mowing down people like stalks of grain. In looking at this haunting image of death, we may in fact be staring into the face of, it, of the UFO. Now, I think there are some startling implications when you look at death in comparison with modern-day UFOnauts, for example. And beforehand, you know, death was an angel. Now, it could be... There could be a connection. Or it could just be a symbol of the prevalence of death at that point in time. Because, as you know, a lot of people were fucking dying, like I said before. So it's hard to chalk it up to whether... This was a hallucination. It was actually happening. What was going on? I really don't know personally where to take it. But I do find the theory pretty good, actually. But then the question comes about why would they want to do that? One account stresses the fact that rather than the plague being contracted person to person, it was a pestilent, deadly, stinking air that did it. During the whole of the year 1382 there was no wind, in consequence of which the air grew putrid. So that an epidemic broke out, and the plague did not pass from one man to another, but everyone who was killed by it got it straight from the air. So we're going to move on and we're going to point out a very interesting warning that people would give at that time. So I'm going to quote William Bramley again on this one. The mist or plague poisons were thick enough to mix normal air moistures and become one part of the morning dew. People were warned to take following precautions. If newly baked bread is placed for one night at the end of the pole, and in the morning is found to be mildewed and internally grown green and yellow and uneatable, and when thrown to the fowls and the dogs, causes them to die from eating it. In a similar manner, if fowls drink in the morning dew and die in the consequence, the plague poison is near at hand. So what these are are a few other good examples that he makes of this... Pestilent Fog, or Mist. Now, he's got a lot of quotes in his book, and I'm not going to quote them all, because I we've already done, like, 15 minutes worth of quotes, or 20 minutes. I'm going to throw a couple more in here, but not a whole lot. So Bramley also notes these thundering noises before plagues would break out. They usually accompanied strange aerial phenomena in the sky. Now... With modern UFO abduction cases and contact cases, it's often reported, you know, you'll hear, like, wishing sounds. Like, whooshing sounds or vibrating sounds, almost. It's the best description I can give of it. During the plague of 1565 in Italy, rumblings of thunder were heard day and night, as in a war... Together with the turmoil and the noises as of a mighty army, in Germany, in many places, a noise was heard as if a hearse were passing through the streets of its own accord. Other less frequent omens were also reported in connection with the Black Death. Some of those phenomena were obviously fiction. Significantly, the fictions were not widespread. And were rarely reported outside their communities in which they originated. Spramley so Bramley then notes contactees, and we're gonna throw abductees in here too. And how in the nineteen fifties and sixties, and actually further on with abductions, the UFO occupants would tell us, you know, they were here to help us, stop diseases on the planet, put down the nukes, kinda thing. His question about this is, if that was what they were saying, then why cause these pestilent plagues to break out? Not only did it have a huge death toll, but it had major psychological and sociological wounds. People believed that God's wrath for their sin had caused the plague and caused deep intervision. The plague brought about ethical decay. In a dying environment, many people will not care if they're right or wrong, doing the right thing, because they're going to die anyway. Black-clad entities, pestilent spraying fogs, and objects, entities knocking on the door with the soon plague to break out upon that victim. We have frightening tales indeed question is, was it rodents and hallucinations? Was it comets carrying pathogens with them? Or was it otherworldly extraterrestrials causing plagues and disasters? Send me a message and let me know what you think about it. Now it is true that UFO occupants are often reported wearing black cloaks. Now, does that necessarily draw a connection? I don't think so. Uh, Through some of the quotes that I gave, obviously there, there is some strange aerial phenomena that could be attributed to comets. Again, the part with ancient astronaut theory is it's open to interpretation. It's hard to tell whether they're Not hallucinations, but misinterpretations. But that still wouldn't explain the entities, unless that were a hallucination. But hallucinations don't knock on your fucking door. So, I don't know, I'm a little torn on it, but it's a nice little Halloween special part for you. So the question is... If this were extraterrestrial, then why? Why would they do that? So if you have any good theories, let me know. We move from the Black Death and the Gods of Eden into Intrusion by Bob Mitchell. Now this is one story about a lady named Jackie Reiser. And we're not going to cover her whole story. She has had past experiences. Maybe we'll do that at a later point. But we're going to move into an odd entity she had an encounter with. Jackie Reiser was married and they were living in a stone cottage near Lake Simcoe in a town east of Barrie, Ontario, Canada. She and her husband both moved there in 1989 and at the time of this book she still lived there currently. She always felt a strange feeling in the hallway near the bathroom close to her bedroom. She goes on to state, the only way I can describe it is that it's if there was some type of energy force at that particular spot. Although Jackie and her husband Albert became aware of this spot they kept it to themselves until visitors and relatives started to notice. To quote Jackie, I guess it was my truth in Tana I wanted to see if anybody else felt it. Others in fact did. One example is her sister who didn't even like going to that part of the home and didn't know why. Jackie always kept the light on in the bathroom and the light illuminates this odd area in the house. She exclaims, It's as if you suddenly smack into something very uncomfortable feeling. If I never had to go down there, I never would. I have lived here for the past 20 years and it's still there. On one very strange night, Jackie found out exactly why. At this time, Jackie was in her mid-forties and she was standing in the hallway just outside of the bathroom. It was the middle of the night and she was unaware how she came to the, that spot. She doesn't remember leaving her bed. She must have simply just come to at this spot. She then notes that she's alone in the hallway can hear her husband Albert snoring in the other room. She then became aware of an odd presence nearby. A strange looking tall being standing next to her. The being was much taller than the previous abductors of prior events. He stood at least eight foot tall for some reason, she can tell this abductor was a male. She stares unafraid at the entity and then becomes engulfed in a bright light, as does the being. The ceiling is seven foot tall, but the being is much taller. As she stares at the ceiling, she knows something Odd indeed. The head of the being is going right through the ceiling. As if the light has somehow allowed this enigmatic creature to go through solid matter. This is a quite common trope in alien abduction cases. Usually the beings have a light appear in your room and they can take you through solid matter like walls, windows. They've been known to walk through walls and windows. But at the same time... They're still physiological beings as well. People can feel them and things like that. It's just a momentarily kind of phase through thing. Her eyes, as well as her thoughts, were soon drawn to the top half of the being in her sight. The eyes are captivating. A thought enters the woman's mind. They're huge, like giant big ovals. As she stares into the face of the entity, she then thinks, is that a beak on its face? Where is its mouth? That can't be a beak. As she stares at the being further, she notes, The being is thin, as if it was made of light. But the being was also wearing a, a cloak. She can see through the being. His upper body is very thin. The being then begins to speak to Jackie through her mind. This is how they come in your room. He pointed towards the bedroom and the window as he spoke to her. His arm stretched out in three different bending motions until straight. As soon as the enigmatic insect-like being retracted its arm, she immediately became aggravated. She's not afraid, she's angry, and she's yelling at the being. Then nothing but blackness until the next morning. She then notes again. She is not afraid of the insect. Not one bit. She then asks if there was something significant about the number three. But then she realized that was how the arm extended in three separate movements. I remember being angry with myself for not asking the being questions, such as who he was and where they came from. This is my chance, but none of those thoughts entered my mind until afterwards, and I don't know why. His appearance didn't freak me out. What freaked me out was him telling me that was how they came into my bedroom. Jackie told very few about the encounter, but one of her experiencer friends suggested the energy source in the hallway was a portal to another dimension or doorway that allows Grace and others to enter her time and space. She then, after her experience, searched the library and photos on the internet to find pictures of the odd being to see if anybody else had reported it. But as far as she could tell, she found no drawings. Nearly all pictures she found were of the greys. Years later, she communicated with a group of experiencers who had similar encounters. She then realized that the being was referred to as a mantis, although clearly having insect-like features of a mantis, she never thought of the being having such features. She also never called him a creature because she always thought of him as a being. Afterwards, she would jokingly call him the Bugman but never looked at him at that time and said oh my god it's a giant bug she simply considered him a male being eventually she did come across other alien drawings of praying mantis beings on the internet she would years later sit down and draw the bug man but, but she struggled with the cloak it was there but at the same time it wasn't there it was as if it were made of light There really are no words to describe something that is there, but at the same time, not there. As I was drawing it, I wondered whether he wore the cloak so he would be more acceptable looking to me rather than looking simply like a giant bug with buggy eyes standing in the hallway. While only having the one encounter with the bug man, she got the sense that she has met him many times. It's like I know him very well. He's like an old friend, but he's not a friend. It's something different. He's really old in our years, but not in his own time reference. He's like a teacher. People say they are doctors, but I don't get that feeling from him. The weirdest thing was where I looked into his eyes in my drawing, and I really felt deep sense of missing him. It was almost as if I loved him. The way a child loves their parents. My sense was he was very kind. I would really love to see him again. I feel very close to him. The more Jackie drew him, the more familiar he became to her. It just seemed as if he has been with me for a long time. Like my whole life. Looking back, she believes the reason she freaked out when the mantid told her, that's how they come into your room, is because... It was like a parent telling a child something they don't want to hear. I wasn't afraid of the mantid at all. It's the greys and the brown troll dudes who did all the stuff to me. But he also might have been letting me know that even the greys and the troll dudes come in my life through the same energy spot. So let's go over some takeaways from this whole tale. She's seen UFOs and she's had abductions before with no need of a portal. As stated when the other experiencer told her that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a very good point right now. And that is to say, why would they need a UFO if they have a portal into your house? The answer is, they wouldn't. They simply could transport you wherever you need to go that way. This, in my opinion, is an issue that I remember from my previous podcast, when I spoke about contactees versus abductees. So having another portal to another dimension in your house, again, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, if you're a love and light UFO kind of person where they're all here to save us Then yeah, that might make sense to you because you look at things more of a metaphysical kind of way When on the other hand you have an abductee who's not really going to view things that same way There's a very stark difference between contactees and abductees Now abductees are going to see more physicality out of that and these people are here to hurt me and grab me. Now, I can tell right off the bat, her experiencer her friend most definitely is a lovey, lighty kind of person. I can already tell just from a simple statement that she made with that. Now, another issue I found with that theory is you're telling me that they had this portal here before she moved into the house? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Or they opened a portal as soon as she moved in the house. Again, doesn't make a lot of sense, especially considering the fact that they have come after her with UFOs before to come and get her. Now, I'm not debunking the theory that there was an odd spot in her house that maybe freaked her out a lot. That seems to be pretty apparent. What I am debating is this... Doorway to another dimension or time and space. I don't exactly buy into that. And I'm not going to. Now let's go over another part here real quick. She then asks if there was some significance in the number three in the bends of the Mantoid creature's arms. Now in this case, some ufologists and paranormal people would jump the gun and say absolutely and what I mean by that is, someone like a Mike Cleland or a Nick Redfern would look at a situation like that, Brad Steiger or John Keel, they'd look at a situation like that and say, okay, so some abductions happen at 3 o'clock and there's three bends in the arm, therefore there's a connection. Or sometimes when people are abducted, there's three entities that surround your bed. Therefore, there's a connection. Now, firstly, that's incorrect in both situations. In fact, the number of entities in your room can vary. The time you're abducted can vary. Simply saying, I woke up at 3 o'clock a.m. in the morning with three abductors around me, therefore, synchronicity does not work. And nor do I think it should. But then she realized that was the way its arm extended in three separate movements she did that herself she didn't jump the gun and do this whole woo woo bullshit and I've been going over and that's what I appreciate about this now the portal thing I get it, you got an odd vibe from a particular spot in your house and then you have an experiencer friend tell you her theory about it that might lead you the way a little bit but again that entity pointed to the window in the doorway or even perhaps that little spot but I kind of doubt that but let's say he did I'm sorry but that window is not that spot she didn't get a weird vibe from the window So that debunks that little theory right there. Now again, commonly in abductions, going through solid matter does happen. Not in every case, but in a great many. And it seems that they're, again, still physiological when they do this. You can feel them grab you. You phase through a wall. You come out the other side. They're physical. That could be technology. This feeling of a mantis being like a parent is also reported. It's not super common, but it's reported people either love or hate them. If you recall from my prior podcast, I talked about Dr. Carla Turner having a similar experience as a child, where a mantis actually grabbed her and was arguing with her, saying, I'm your mother, in her backyard. Now the three bends in the arm, that's one of the reasons they're called praying mantis type entities. That's reported in, I'm hesitant to say all of the cases, but damn near every case of these insectoids. Usually reported with long, skinny, bony fingers, and in fact, that's what she drew in that book. Now being knocked out in a dream doesn't happen. Going black is not common in a dream. And we are gonna skip my dream that I had as well. They we don't need to go into that. But that's not a common thing. In fact, I wouldn't say it's not common, it just doesn't happen. It can't be knocked out in a dream and that's my interpretation of this it fits in with your typical alien abduction or at least scenario she wasn't actually taken as far as she knew but she did go black so therefore she very well could have been she just doesn't remember that part and we're going to end it on this section and that's the story of Jackie Reiser at least one aspect of it if you want to hear more about that Shoot me a message, let me know, and we will go over some of those parts of the book, too. But right now, we have a prior engagement to get to, and that's Pat's story. Pat, Part 2 The next day, preceding the odd abduction, oddly there was no conversation of the night prior. But Pat's brother notes that on that day, a white staff car, a green car, a jeep, as well as several white vans arrived. It was the military arriving on the farm with instruments and equipment. There was a troop carrier that carried many soldiers, who combed the entire sixteen acres of land. Pat's brother stated that he had to move animal feed to the smokehouse, usually kept in the barn. But the barn held a hidden and large truck, military equipment, so he was not permitted to enter. They came in our house and set up equipment in the living room. The army men wanted to talk to me most. Me, an 11-year-old girl with secrets in my head, exclaimed Pat. But the beings told her not to say anything. There are those who would tamper with your mind. And here they were, the tamperers, the army men. The military would stay an astonishing four days. And the only person allowed to go out was Pat's brother, in order to take care of the farm animals. Her brother remembers what was going on outside. Due to this, he says, there were more than 20 soldiers outside and told to man their stations on the farm. He was then questioned by a man dressed in a white lab coat, who asked about the chickens and the pigs. "'Are your pigs out there?' the man asked, gesturing to the boy, and he nodded yes. "'Have the pigs been acting funny?' "'No,' the child said. "'Why?' The odd man then said something about minerals in the soil, making animals act strangely. The boy stated he felt comfortable with the man and wasn't afraid to answer questions or ask some of his own. He even offered the man some fresh mint, a favorite treat, from a patch near the cellar. But the man refused. They're taking samples there, and we'll be in the way. When they're done, we'll go get some. Pat was mad about being restricted. She felt as if they would take her family and put her in jail, or something but she felt as if the being was protecting her. She called him the little boy at the time, but she also knew he was not a little boy. Two female doctors set up equipment in her parents' room where Pat received an injection. It made me sleepy, said Pat. She laid there upon her parents' bed on a towel and the child told her story. I even told them, you're in my mom's room where the white ones were. You don't belong here, but they do." Dr. Carla Turner then asked Pat to put herself back in the situation and recount everything she could recall. She went back into her 11-year-old form of mind and began to relive the situation. Pat recounts seeing a man dressed in all-brown uniform and wearing a captain's hat. The man had thick silver-gray hair and speaking to Pat's mother and grandmother holding a file envelope. Then another man appeared, and removed his coat and rolled up his sleeves. His name was Mr. Donaldson. He's also an army man, Pat exclaimed. Then the other people began to set up three TV screen things in our living room, a little taller than I was. Mr. Donaldson opened up arms on the machine and told Pat it looked like a robot. See, Pat, he said. If we open it out the panels, they look like arms, so maybe you saw a robot like this. No, Pat stated. I didn't see a robot. I saw a little boy. She remembered the lady doctors clearly. One had a white coat and the other lady was Dr. Susan. She wore a bright orange coat. She had brown blonde hair with bangs over her, over her forehead and the rest was pulled back from her face. Dr. Susan had things like dental equipment in her mother's room. Instruments were there, but Pat couldn't recall what. The really clear picture Is of a shot wrapped in a cellophane or plastic. It had a hose attached to it which was also wrapped in cellophane or plastic as well. Dr. Susan began to open the shot. Frightened, Pat asked if she had to get a shot with that thing. Dr. Susan then directed Pat to Mr. Donaldson who was in the living room speaking angrily to men in the living room, dressed in white moon suits, as she describes. And they were holding white boxes without handles. He was saying, I told you to use the ones with the handles. After Pat received a shot, it made her feel dreamy and willing to talk about her secret memories. She was upset with Mr. Donaldson didn't believe her. I always told the truth because my mom hated a liar. So I told the army men about my visit with the beings. I cried when they told me I didn't see what I thought I saw. She figured Mr. Donaldson felt bad because after she cried, everyone was being nice. Pat then questions, Why did they say I didn't see the little boy? Why did such a wonderful thing as a visit get everyone so upset and mad? And why did I have to get another shot? Someone asked about the glowing white beings, and Pat said, ''They are angels.'' ''How do you know they are angels?'' Her interrogator asked. ''Because they told me so,'' Pat said. ''And what else did they tell you, Pat?'' One person asked. ''Did they tell you anything else?'' ''Yes,'' she replied. ''They told me a lot of things, but I can't remember them now. Someday I will remember, but not now.'' ''Why can't you remember now?'' she asked. Because, Pat said. They said it's not time to remember. And besides, you were coming here, and I can't tell you because it's a special thing. When I'm a lot older, I'll remember what they said and going to happen. Did they tell you what's going to happen? Yes, they did, Pat replied. They told me about the bad time on Earth. I'm not supposed to tell about that. I can't remember now, well, some of it I remember, like the crystalline ship. They were in it, it was full of light, and I called it it, crystalline ship because it wasn't metal, like a plane. The lights made everything work by itself, and they moved things without touching them, and even me, they moved me without touching me, they moved me up and down. They are full of love, and they protected me with a silver light in me, and I love them." They then asked about the little boy's clothes and hair. Pat felt like the man was dumb for asking such a question. "'Don't you know,' she said, "'that the beings don't have hair and don't have clothes. The little boy has real big slanty eyes that can film everything inside me in my head in my soul. He talks to me in my head and doesn't use his mouth because he only has a line there. He's really skinny but he doesn't have to eat because he's an angel. Pat states, I thought angels had wings and I laughed because he laughed with his eyes because he knew I was thinking about wings. I got kinda scared because I knew he was really an angel then, he knew what I thought, and only angels can tell what you think all the time, except so can Jesus. So I thought in my head, do you know Jesus? And the beings, and I filled up with a love feeling that kind of made me cry, and know something special, and the being said yes in my head. I said, are you like the angels? And the being said yes, but not as you have been taught. I wanted to stay with them, and go back with them. Pat, stop here, said the interrogator. Let's ask you a question. You said you wanted to go back with them. Where do you want to go back to? I can't tell you that, said Pat. I'm not supposed to tell you that part. But the angel said when it was time to go, they would come back. They promised me. I made them promise me. But he said it wasn't time yet. I begged and cried and felt real sad. Mr. Donaldson asked, why I was crying and I told him because you're making me cry and you're making me tell you and I'm not supposed to tell and you think I'm lying but I'm not okay stop crying Pat said Mr. Donaldson calm down and listen to my voice I don't think you're lying and I won't ask you any more questions if you tell me about the souvenirs where are they Pat do you have souvenirs Pat became mistrustful of the army men, and she felt very stressed. She tried not to say anything more, but Mr. Donaldson asked again, Where are your souvenirs? I cried, Pat said. I told him they were mine. She then asked, Why did he want them? Pat said they were in a cigar box under her bed. Pat wouldn't give it to them. But her sister went up and fetched it for them. The box contained the green healer stone she placed in it. It was the one that was over her stepfather. It was placed in the white boxes of the men with the radioactive suits from before. I saw my grandmother sitting on my bed with the little kids, and she is crying, said Pat. I asked her if the army men were going to hurt the little boy. Oh, Patty, the grandmother replied, there is no little boy. Pat then explained to her that there was a little boy and that Mr. Donaldson tried to convince her the boy was a robot, but she knew better. Well, Pat, he said then, maybe you just had a dream about a little boy. Was he in your dream? It was a dream, a kind of dream that just seems real. You don't see a real little boy because there are no such things. Yes, I did, she argued, and he came in an orange ball and looked at me in my window and filmed me with his eyes. Did the dream frighten you? asked Mr. Donaldson. It wasn't a dream, Pat argued, and I was only scared because he looked so different from me, because he was skinny and gray, but I knew he wouldn't hurt me. Pat remembered almost nothing else of her interrogation, although the military people were present for several days. After the army left, she spoke about how my whole family seemed sad, kind of in a daze, and I had no memory of anything after that. We moved to a t- we moved to town before my 12th birthday, in August of 1955. But this was not Pat's last encounter with odd visitors. So next week, we're going to conclude Pat's Tale. so we got one more act in this so far it's quite a fascinating story young woman's abducted odd experiences again note the blackout part right like getting knocked out same as the tale from the last little session you know intrusion And then the military come, interrogate her and her family, find what they need, stay there for a couple more days, and then they leave. And my guess would be as a result of the military intervention, they then moved. But there's still more to come, and we're going to go into that next week. That's going to be our episode for today. Now, again, I want to state from the first story, there's a lot of quotes in there by William Bramley, and I'm going to put all of these books in the show notes so you can find them, and you can buy them, or you can read them. Bob Mitchell's book, Intrusion, is a little harder to get a hold of. It's out of print now, so you can buy it on Kindle, and people are scalping that fucker on Amazon. But it's still a fascinating book. It's not very long, but it is good. But back to the Gods of Eden. I don't know what to make of that. You can only go so far with the ancient astronaut theory. I can say that those were extraterrestrials. If I wanted to. But where am I going from there? The second story. Bit of an odd abduction. But it has striking similarities to all the other cases of abductions. Or at least the at-home abductions, right? Not your Betty and Barney Hills, were driving down the road. But it does have startling implications to it. As far as Pat's story, again, you find a lot of similarities in her abduction with Jackie Reiser from Intrusion. If you just kind of piece them together, listening to the two podcasts, you're going to see some parallels. Now, personally, I don't discount any of it. It's not my business to discount any of it. I can't prove otherwise. And I don't think the burden of proof is on these people either. Because how would you prove something like that? Now, again, you did hear what I had to say about Jackie Reiser and the portal. Now, when it comes to weird things like woo-woo portals and stuff, I do need a little more evidence on that. Especially when I just gave a couple good examples of alternative theories. Well, I wouldn't say alternative theories as much as a, a damn good argument, at least. Now that's our episode this week. I just want to wish everybody a happy Halloween. I want to say thank you for listening to my podcast. You can find me on Anchor, Reason, Spotify, many other places. I want to thank the Ghoulies again for Hot Rods from Outer Space intro and outro music. I've got a Facebook page up, so if you want to get a hold of me, message me on there, or go to theufos at yahoo.com and send me a message. If you'd like to come on the podcast, let me know. If you'd like to tell me a story, and just your experience, let me know and send it to me and we'll talk about it. Again, sorry for the bad reading. I think I'm getting a little better at it, so just bear with me on that. So I want to thank you guys again. This is T. Keep kicking it.